And welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me today, he is the man who played Dr. James in the 2007 film Box Borders, Stephen <laughs> Tobolowski. <laughs> Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? Oh, God. You never failed to get me, David. This is so good. Yeah, Box Borders is where I told the story of Oleg, you know, in uh, Afflictions of Love. You nice. know, with and by the how- way, I should say that uh, I think the correct pronunciation, the correct pronunciation is Box Borders, because there's an <laughs> exclamation mark after Box Borders. That is correct. And that was a very fun movie. It was very delightful. And uh, it really is, for a little independent film, it is quite fun. It is quite hysterical, and I think parents with kids would really love it, and you should rent it because I wouldn't say that. It's a lot of fun, that movie. But that's where I met Oleg, who was next door to the hotel, who was selling nothing but chips and coffee and lottery tickets that I mentioned in Afflictions of Love. Oh, and I have big Afflictions of Love news today. Okay. The squirrel with the huge balls has returned. I was in the backyard this morning, and I know I got some tweets about it. The squirrel with the gigantic balls is back. He must have heard the episode and wanted to make an appearance. (laughs) He's complaining. He's filing suit. Oh, dear. Well, you know, Stephen, we record this show. We've been trying to get ahead, so actually we're recording the show right now on uh, May 26, even though it won't be released for a while. Yes. Uh, And we're scheduling recording this show. And uh, I, I tried to call you the other day, and you, you didn't call me back, and then you emailed me the next morning. You said, Dear David, worked late yesterday getting a BJ. And uh, BJ, of course, I, I believe stands for blowjob, uh, which... I, I think that's what it stands for. Uh, I've never really had... I was doing Californication, and I've never had to do a scene of simulated sex before. It's very difficult because, you know, you don't have a lot of options. I I was mentioning to some of my Twitter friends that uh, the first option is just pretend you're Richard Gere. And, And what would he do in this case if he... But I never get to play these kind of parts. So, um... I just did what I normally do is uh, I started telling jokes. You know, I put the box of – we're in a movie theater when it happens, and I put the box of popcorn on her head and kept watching the movie. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, was, it was difficult. But, but it was interesting because in this particular episode, uh, they had to wax my back. It was one of the jokes in the show that I'm a very hairy man, and they had to wax my back. And the now, see, these are things that people at home don't realize. You know, 
when you make a TV show and you write a joke that an actor has a terrifically hairy back, I don't. So they had to go to plan B and they, <laughs> they had to hire two extras that were about my size and shape that did have hairy backs and they would not show their face so they could wax their back or part of their back uh, to make the joke. And, and um, I only bring this up because the last couple weeks I've been thinking a lot about the difficulties of being an actor and the difficulties in living. And one of the big facets of being an actor and living is you have to become comfortable with plan B. And that's the name of our podcast today. Uh, and I'm going to go back in time. I'm going to start by going back in time. Uh, I remember we were living on Hayworth Street and Beth and I were lying in bed watching Make Me Laugh on the television. And Beth said to me, tell me the story about the Miss Firecracker contest again. And she had her tattered spiral notebooks out. And I told her about the very, 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 very minor beauty pageant that was held in our local park in Texas every 4th of July. I told her about how the head of the pageant was meeting with the girls before the voting, telling them if it got over 110 degrees or was deemed to be hot enough to make people faint, that they would cancel the final procession. I remember that every year, my brother and sister and occasionally mom, we would pack food and go out to the park, not so much for the contest, but for the fireworks afterwards. Fireworks were always magical. And in Oak Cliff, we only saw them once a year, and that was with the crowning of Miss Firecracker. And there were always a lot of people spreading out their blankets and eating snacks some daring couples would, would be making out. And believe me, the romantic elements of that evening were very tame by modern standards. The last year our family went was notable in that the truck that had all the fireworks on it blew up. It was something more reminiscent of the Revolutionary War than the national holiday commemorating it. But we Tobolowskis were a stubborn lot. <laughs> And we sat on our blankets for another two hours waiting for the show to start. My brother Paul was the first to come up with the theory that there would be no show. The show blew up. I was so disheartened, I came up with an alternate theory, a sort of plan B. That the firecracker man went to talk to another firecracker man who was on his way with another truck. Paul explained the firecracker men don't work together like that. They have one truck of fireworks, and when that goes, it's gone. From that year on, we didn't go back to the park on the 4th of July. Instead, we climbed up on our roof and watched the fireworks, and they were still beautiful, even from a distance. Beth wrote down a couple sentences from my tale. Uh, she said she was writing another play and wanted to know what kind of part I wanted. Well... I smiled and told her I wanted to be a knight in shining armor who rescues the damsel in distress. I said that's always the part the man wants to play. There was never any way of predicting what Beth would write. When she finished the Miss Firecracker contest and handed it over for me to read, I was ready to be amazed. And I was. It had very little to do with the story I told. It was all Beth. 
It had all of the elements that made Crimes of the Heart great. It was a small cast play, very tightly constructed. It observed most of Aristotle's unities of time, place, and story. It had scenes that were alternately hilarious and heartbreaking. It was around 1978, and Beth and I were taking acting classes from Maria Gobetti. We found Maria through Ed K. Martin after we left the University of Illinois. Yes, once again, the unexpected influence of Ed entered our lives. Maria had just moved from teaching in a room over a Lebanese grocery store in Hollywood to a small theater in the San Fernando Valley. Maria wanted to be more than just an acting coach. She wanted to start a theater that would be a new voice for playwrights in Los Angeles. And she named it appropriately the Victory Theater. And she felt that the Miss Firecracker contest would be a great mission statement. Well, Maria's dream came true. The Victory Theater opened with the Miss Firecracker contest in March of 1980. It was, I must say... <laughs> A production with almost no budget. In fact, I would bet that more money was spent on buying coffee to serve at intermission than the amount paid to the actors, director, and crew combined. But Maria gave the play a voice, and that cannot be underestimated. And for the two months we performed, Beth's world came alive. The production was not the resounding success we had dreamt about. The reviews were good, but not overly enthusiastic. The audiences were small, and that could be an understatement. At first, we performed for family and friends. Then we performed for the family of our friends and the friends of our families and the people they were dating and their dentists or nannies or anyone else whose arms we could twist to get them into this little theater. On an average, on any given night, we could count on there being anywhere from 15 to 20 people in the audience. If there were 25... We felt like James Cameron at the opening of Avatar. I have to admit that our spirits were a little low. We were disheartened by our inability to create a tiny ripple with our efforts, and it seemed like we couldn't even give the tickets away. The problem with counting heads is that you tend to miss the rest of the body. One night, we had about 12 heads in the audience, but one of them belonged to the famed playwright Oliver Haley. He scored a hit on Broadway with Who's Happy Now? And he was not friend, and he was not family. He just happened to show up to see the play. And afterwards, he came backstage and was screaming, This play is so good, it made me goofy. You guys made me nuts. I'm goofy. Right now, I'm goofy. I can't talk at all. I'm just goofy. More than any review the play ever got, that proclamation of Oliver's did more good than you could imagine. From then on, we seemed to believe in ourselves regardless of the number of people in the seats. Oliver invited some of his writer friends to see the play, and they were also impressed, and Beth was welcomed into their fold. I've often thought of that evening when Oliver came to the play, and the enormous change he brought with just those few kind words. In truth, he didn't tell us anything we didn't already know. We knew the play was good. We just never gave ourselves the permission to completely believe it. Oliver gave us that. And over the next four years, through various productions of the Miss Firecracker contest, there were always problems. There were always disappointments. And whether I was acting in the play or directing the play, 
my mind always seemed to go back to the night when Oliver went goofy on us at the Victory Theater. And once again, I would feel encouraged. So, how do you bottle that? As an actor, writer, director, musician, and artist, how do you find that kind of strength on your own? What do you grab onto? As a teacher in middle school, when you feel that no one is listening and you wonder how you ever ended up here, where do you get that voice that tells you you're doing a good job, keep going, that tells you that you are doing something so good, it's goofy? The answer is not an easy one to grab onto. You have to have faith. I know, it's irritating. It's a very irritating answer for lots of reasons. Faith, by its very nature, is very slippery. It's hard to talk about as it is to have. I think it most commonly manifests itself in life, not so much in our belief in angels, but in our belief in Las Vegas. I'm not really saying that faith and luck are the same thing, but if you were to put my feet to the fire and made me define it, I would say that faith is the belief that we are part of a plan. And we all hope that that plan is plan A. When things get off the tracks, that's when we have to improvise. I remember my mother always made wishes for us, hundreds of them. She believed that if she wished hard enough and put a penny face up on a shelf or the mantle or a table, that wish would eventually come true. Our bookshelves at home are still the final resting place of hundreds of her pennies face up. Each one now represents some forgotten wish. It's been over two years since she passed away, but her faith had to be contagious because, let me tell you, all of us are still afraid to touch any of the pennies for fear of breaking some spell. Another reason we don't trust faith is that we usually have it at the wrong time. For example, I am always ready to go to the gym tomorrow, to diet after I ate dessert, and I always feel like I could take on the world when I'm in the shower. When I was young, like in my teens, I would give great performances in the shower and accept Academy Awards while I was washing my hair. But eventually, you have to dry off and you have to do it for real. And that's when the world has its say. And the world often ignores the pennies on the mantle. In 1981, I had a series of bone-crushing, dream-ending blows. Despite my history with the play Crimes of the Heart, reading it when it was first written in the living room of our home in Los Angeles, flying out to Louisville when Beth called me up crying and sitting through rehearsals with her and at that first production holding her hand there at the premiere, driving with her new agent Gilbert Parker across the state line to Indiana where liquor stores were open on Sunday to buy beer for the cast, despite the fact that Beth had written the part of Barnett Lloyd for me to play despite all of that. When a new producer and new director came into the mix, I did not get the part. The role went to Peter McNichol. The fireworks truck had exploded. Now, I have to be clear. I didn't feel cheated. Devastated, yes. Cheated, no. I knew nothing was a given in this business. Even in high school, I saw football players instead of drama students getting cast in the leading roles. 
Nobody owed me the part, but it was still a body blow that left me utterly without faith in myself. Then, out of the blue, I got a call from David Frank. He produced Crimes of the Heart in St. Louis after the Louisville premiere two years ago. It was the one production where I got to play Barnett. He was now running a theater in Buffalo, New York, and he asked me if I wanted to come up and play Delmont, the knight in shining armor role that Beth had written for me in Misfire Cracker. Beth thought it was a good idea. We could still be in the same geographical part of the world and be involved in theater in general. I couldn't help it. I felt like a baseball player that was sent down to the minor leagues. It was hard to suddenly come to grips with the idea that my life had irrevocably shifted to plan B. I thought about my options. That helped. I had none. Life is always simpler when you have no options. I didn't really have an agent working for me in Los Angeles. Well, okay, that's not true. (laughs) Okay, I did. In fact, I went over to his office to talk to him one day, and an old woman came to the door and said that the nice young man moved out six months ago. I was still working in the schools with Twelfth Night Repertory Company doing skits about Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea. The skits were good. The kids loved it. But there was no future there. In my head, I just imagined this picture of an older and older me in a leotard. I was already starting to scare the children. Side note, balding men should never wear leotards. Secondly, adult men who perform in children's theater should never wear costumes made by women. There's never room for a penis, and the stretch pants and unitards always make you look like a model for Honcho magazine. I had another problem at this time that I never told anyone, a physical one. I was playing Moonlight Sonata one night, and I felt an unusual pain, and it made me jump. I pulled my hands off the keys, and several of my fingertips were bruised. Yeah, weird. Over the next few days, I noticed touching anything was enough to bruise me. I heard that Lawrence Olivier had a medical condition in his final days that made him bruise constantly to the point he had to wear white gloves. Too bad cable TV hadn't been invented yet. I could have gotten into show business playing myself on mystery diagnosis. Along with the bruising, I started getting terrible headaches that made it very hard for me to go to sleep. And when I did go to sleep, I would often wake up nauseated. I assumed I had some sort of cancer or arsenic poisoning. I never went to the doctor, but I did call up David Frank, and I told him I would take the job. Plan B isn't so bad when you consider how big the alphabet is. I was off to Buffalo. I arrived in Buffalo after being sick for about three weeks. I didn't tell anyone because I didn't want to get fired from Plan B and be shipped down the alphabet even further. My mind kept flashing back to Jack, 
who Beth and I did summer stock with in 1972, he ended up on Broadway, not acting, but giving enemas to the animals that appeared in Pippin so they wouldn't have an accident on stage. Believe me, that wasn't plan A. That wasn't even plan B. That plan may not have even been in the alphabet. It may have been a Roman numeral. The first time things don't work out in your life, you see the game board clearly for the first time, and there are far more shoots than ladders. Not that it's a consoling thought, but there is a scientific reason for that. It's called entropy. It's a name given to the fact that the universe and everything in it is running downhill all the time. Here's an example of entropy. Let's say you have 100 buckets of equal size, and you fill the first bucket all the way up with water, and then you pour that bucket into bucket number two, and so on, and so on, and so on. When you get to bucket 100, you will have less water than when you started. And some very, very smart person figured out that the constant of entropy in the universe is 4%, which means if you just go with the flow, you will diminish at a rate of 4% which is why sometimes you feel like you're a winner if you're just able to stand still. I was feeling the force of the downhill slide as I was standing still at the Buffalo airport waiting for someone to pick me up. Car pulled up. It was no ordinary driver. It was my friend Bob Darnell. He volunteered. I met Bob back in St. Louis. He played Doc in Crimes of the Heart, and he was easily one of the biggest jerks I had ever met. He was a 50-year-old beatnik former Marine who had sported some prominent tattoos, including, as the story goes, a tattoo of an arrow on his manhood. I asked him privately what women think when he drops his drawers for the first time and they see the tattoo. He says usually they don't mind because they usually have tattoos too. I should mention that it was great in St. Louis to meet the biggest jerk in my life because it brings a sense of order to your hierarchy of jerks. Once you have the top jerk, everything else falls in line and you can relax. In St. Louis, Bob stayed drunk or stoned most of the time when he wasn't on stage. When we performed Crimes of the Heart, he was focused on playing cards in the dressing room. He used, to, he used to see how long he could concentrate on the card game without missing his entrance. He and his friends would be laughing and telling stories and playing bid whist when suddenly he'd throw his cards down. He would tear out of the dressing room and walk on stage to do a tender love scene. I thought it was highly unprofessional. One matinee, our producer, dear David Frank, who was a very proper Englishman, stuck his head into the dressing room and said, Bobby, how are things going? Bob never looked up from his cards. He just muttered with his perennial lucky strike dangling from his lips. Fine. David added, And Bobby, how do we like the new fellow? David smiled and gestured toward me. Bob looked at me in the dressing room mirror, and he made eye contact with me, and he said, Him? Oh, he's an asshole. David looked up at me apologetically and said, Oh dear, an asshole. And why is that, Bobby? Bob kept a steady gaze on me as he uttered, because he thinks what happens on stage is more important than the card game. David blushed in embarrassment and lightheartedly chastised Bob and said, well, bravo for him then, Bobby, bravo. David scurried off. Bob kept looking at me in the mirror and said, yeah, 
bravo for him. And he went back to the card game. We finished the show that afternoon, and I stopped Bob in the dressing room before he left for the bar, and I said, I need to ask you a question. Bob said, yeah. I said, you were serious when you told David that I was an asshole? Bob said, yeah. I continued, and you were serious when you said it was because I cared more about what happened on stage? And Bob said, that's right. And for some reason, I felt like I was missing some crucial bit of logic in this exchange. So I continued, what are you talking about? Bob looked at me seriously and said without a drop of malice, you think you're better than we are because you're a serious actor and you care more about acting than we do? And don't get me wrong, you're fine and all that. But let me tell you, the people out there who come to see the show... All they want to see is a real person. If you could be a real person sitting in this room with us, playing cards, you will be a real person on that stage, and only then will you really be good. And that's the flat-out truth, Jack. I nodded and muttered, Thanks. Bob muttered, No problem, and left. The next night at the show, I asked if I could be dealt into the card game. Bob didn't look up, didn't say a word, just grabbed another chair and slid it up to the card table next to him and offered it to me with a sweeping gesture of his hand. That was one of the most nerve-wracking performances of my life, focusing on the cards and not the play. But I started to notice that my performance began to loosen up. I became more improvisational. I was able to adapt to mistakes on stage quicker and with more ease. And by the end of the run... I was playing cards and trying to time my entrance with everybody else. Bob is right. I found that the stage became an extension of my real life instead of merely a platform to demonstrate some of my well-conceived comic gems. So once again, I had misjudged. Big time. In the course of our run in St. Louis, Bob became one of my closest friends. I talked to him about everything. His wisdom was only matched by his penchant for self-destruction. His second marriage broke up, and when David Frank moved on to Buffalo, he called on Bob to be the first member of his new acting company. So, here I was waiting on the curb at the Buffalo airport, on the downside of the rainbow. Now, two years ago in St. Louis... I was imagining I was moving on to better things, a career on Broadway. I would probably get a Tony for Crimes of the Heart. Now, all of that was gone. I was still acting for David Frank with Bob Darnell in a regional theater that seemed to redefine the boonies in Buffalo, New York. I had been humbled for sure, and I still hadn't let on that I was terribly ill with something. When Bob spotted me waiting with my bags... He almost drove up on the curb with his car. He reeked of Irish whiskey and pot. He ran out of the car, hugged me, kissed me hard on the mouth, and started screaming, Man, it is good to see you, dude. Hope you don't mind the open mouth kiss. I think dudes should kiss each other a lot more than they do. I think the Indian Braves used to kiss or some sort of shit like that. Get in the car, bro. I'm going to get you drunk. I'm going to get you laid, and then we're going to act in this play. Man, your old lady can write good fucking stuff. Get in. I did. 
the next 20 minutes could have been recorded as a public safety film on the dangers of drunk driving. I was terrified. We were speeding. We were driving on sidewalks. We came to a dead stop in the middle of the freeway because Bob thought he saw a deer. As we were weaving in and out of concrete pylons, Bob said the first stop was to get me a little Irish at Ray Flynn's Tavern. I told him, no, 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 no. I needed to go to my apartment and unpack first. My new abode was a decrepit five-story apartment building that probably dated back to the invention of cement. It had been refurbished and renamed the Studio Apartments. It was built equidistance from the theater and skid row, and it was home away from home for visiting actors who didn't flinch at the sound of occasional gunfire. I pulled out my big suitcase, and Bob told me he'd be up in a second, but he needed to puke first. He told me my apartment was up on the third floor, and I could just climb up the fire escape. Bob started retching in the parking lot, and I started hiking up the rickety metal stairs. On my way up, I noticed some strange decorative metalwork on the railings, and I stopped to get a closer look at the metalwork, and it was crawling. It was a huge spider in a web, and then I noticed all of the metalwork was moving. It was all spiders everywhere. I'm talking like a spider that came straight from your nightmares. These things were black. They were about as big as a silver dollar. Their webs looked exactly like Halloween decorations. In fact, these guys may have been the poster boys. They were all glistening in the moonlight, and I could see that webs had been strung from every vertical and horizontal piece of metal on the fire escape. As tired as I was from the flight, as depleted of any remaining life force I was by the amazingly dangerous car ride, I was now running up the fire escape at full speed with the gigantic suitcase that Beth and I had taken to France in college. I got up to the third floor landing. Two spiders from the floor above started to drop down from their webs. I screamed and ran inside the kitchen. I turned on the light. My first impression was the apartment was huge, newly painted, two-bedroom affair with 12-foot-high ceilings. And then I noticed in the corner of every room was a black spider crawling around the roof or making a web. What movie had I fallen into? I looked out of my window, and there on the moonlit asphalt parking lot below, it appeared that Bob had finished vomiting and was now passed out on the ground a few feet from his car. I didn't unpack. I wandered back to the bedroom, turned on the light. I took off my shirt, lay down in bed. I took a couple of deep breaths and looked up. Oh, God, more spiders. They started down the wall toward me. That did it. I snapped, and I started a loud, impromptu speech like something from Star Trek that went something like this. Listen up. Attention, spiders, you motherfucking miserable pieces of shit. I am declaring this apartment to be mine. You understand? It's mine. Let me demonstrate. And I took off one of my kung fu shoes I was wearing. I stood on my bed and smashed one of the descending brethren to smithereens. Then I hopped over to the desk and I smashed another one. And I waited for others to come down a little more. And then wham, wham, I dispatched them as well. And I continued. As you can see, we both can live but not together. Listen up. I am six feet three inches tall. If I jump with a kung fu shoe in my hand, I am probably over eight feet tall. Anything above that height is yours. 
Anything beneath it is mine and will be dealt with strictly and with as much severity as a spider can be dealt with. I ran through the apartment, jumping and smashing spiders. Most died, others retreated. I continued my speech. As you may have noticed, I like doing this. I will never get tired of doing this, so go to another apartment. If you have any notions of coexisting with a human being, do not be deluded that we will work this out. I am your worst nightmare. I am a crazy man with a shoe. I finished my round of mayhem. I was exhausted. I passed out in the guest bedroom. I woke up with a blinding headache and nausea. I had a bigger problem than spiders. In my exhaustion, my mystery illness kicked in with another strange symptom, amnesia. I had completely forgotten I was in Buffalo. I woke up and called out for Beth. She didn't answer. I got up and the room came more and more into focus, and I didn't recognize anything. Not one chair, not one sofa, not one door. There was no TV. There were no familiar cups or plates in the kitchen. I ran out the front door, and I was in an apartment building, and there was a stairway. Now I was scared because in Los Angeles, I lived in a one-story house. You will also recall that on Mr. Toad's wild ride from the airport, we came up the back way in the fire escape. I had no idea what awaited me out the front door. Buffalo had passed a measure in their last election to build a subway. The project started right in front of the studio apartments. There were no people. There were no cars. There was no street. There was almost no there there. There was a hole about 100 feet deep, two miles long, where the street used to be. Now I was certain that the world had ended. There had been some sort of apocalypse that happened while I was asleep, and now I was transported into another dimension. But I saw a phone booth a few yards away in a pile of concrete rubble. It had a light on and looked as hospitable as any place here at the end of life as we knew it. I ran over. I went inside. Oh, I remembered my phone number. I could call and see if anyone answered. I picked up the receiver. I put a quarter in the slot. It started to ring, and a human operator came on. She was telling me that I was making a long-distance phone call, and I had not put in the proper amount of money. I was so happy to hear her voice. It meant a lot. It meant that I had dialed a real number. It meant that we were still using a system of currency that I was familiar with and that the war had not killed all of humanity or taken out the phone system. Just as I was about to ask her where I was and what happened when I was asleep, something big and black and out of focus dropped in front of my eyes. It was a spider. It was spelunking down from the roof of the phone booth, and I looked up, and there were two more descending on my head. I screamed. I ran out through the rubble. I ran past the building I had come out of, and now was just freeloading down the road. I was running in my kung fu shoes and t-shirt along this gigantic crater, and I saw a police car on the other side of the crater, so I started jumping up and down and waving. That did the trick. 
There's just about nothing that can get the police's attention more than a man running in his undershirt and kung fu shoes at 3 in the morning. The police car spun around, drove back in my direction. They slammed on the brakes and got out of the patrol car. I started jumping as they approached the opposite side of the chasm. They called out, Hello, sir. What seems to be the trouble? I shouted back, Boy, am I glad to see you guys. I thought it was the end of the world. They said, Nah, it's only Thursday. So what's the problem, buddy? I yelled back, It's a big one. I bet you don't get this one every day. They answered back, We don't know. Try us. Okay, here it is. I have no idea where I am or what I'm doing, and I really need help to figure out what's going on and what's with all the spiders. Pause. The cop stared at me and yelled, Stay right there, pal. Don't move. We're on our way. They jumped in the car and tore toward the temporary overpass to get to my side of the huge hole. In a couple minutes, they swung beside me, popped out of the car. One of them was carefully resting his finger on the handcuffs on the back of his belt as they approached me. I started talking. Again, want to thank you guys for helping me out. I think what I really need is to get to some sort of hospital. Are there any around here? One cop led me over to the back of the police car. He opened the door and gestured for me to get inside. Hospitals? Oh, you bet. We have a real nice one a couple miles down the road. Hop in. We'll give you a lift. I jumped in the car and thanked them again. This is really nice of you guys. Uh, I need to ask you one more really stupid question. Ask away. Okay. This is hard to ask. The cop said, don't worry. We specialize in stupid questions. <laughs> okay, I said, here goes. I know I live in Los Angeles. We're not there now, are we? The cop said, no, not at all. You're in Buffalo, New York. That rang a bell. Of course, I'm in Buffalo, I said. I'm an actor. You have a theater here, right? And the policeman said, yeah, right over there, right where we picked you up, the studio arena. For some reason, the officer seemed slightly disappointed that I was starting to put the pieces together. I relaxed in the back seat. Great. Cool. I bet you I'm here doing a play, and I do know my phone number. I bet my girlfriend will be able to fill me in on everything. I'm just glad it's not the end of the world. I was worried there for a second. The cops looked at one another and laughed. Nope, you're safe on that one, pal. We're almost to the hospital, and we'll sort everything out there. I got to the emergency room, and a very kind and patient doctor started tending to me. He gave me a breath test, a blood test, a urinalysis. The police waited there, too, and kept whispering to the doctor. The doctor looked over the test results and shrugged to the police. They shrugged back. They came up to my bedside and said, Well, amazingly, we're going to be on our way. They'll look after you here. Enjoy Buffalo. The doctor came back and sat beside me. He had a sweet, sad smile. He said, I'm a little concerned about your tests. I said, is it arsenic? I thought it could be arsenic. The doctor said, what? I said, I was thinking I had some kind of arsenic poisoning. And the doctor said, no, your tests are all normal. I said, oh, then I'm a hypochondriac. 
He laughed and said, maybe, but that still doesn't account for what happened tonight. If you had been drinking or taking drugs, it'd be easier to explain. Tell me, what else has been happening with you lately? So I told the doctor about the headaches and the nausea when I fell asleep and the consequential sleep deprivation for the last three weeks. I told him about the bruising of my fingertips. That made him furrow his brow. He smiled sadly and said, I'll be back. We're in luck. It's a quiet night. Maybe we could get to the bottom of it. He sauntered out of the examining room, and I lay there drifting off. Next thing I knew, the doctor was gently shaking me awake. He was standing over me with some pills. He said, Stephen, Stephen, I have a theory. I think you may have viral meningitis. That woke me up. Meningitis? Isn't that fatal? He said, not the type you have. It's like any virus. Nothing will help it. You can only treat the symptoms. I think if you were able to sleep, you would feel a lot better. I want you to sleep. Sleep as much as you can. Here's some pills. He handed me an amber pharmacy container with about 20 pills in it. I said, I can't. They flew me out from Los Angeles to act in a play. If I tell them I can't rehearse, they'll fire me. I'm on thin ice already. Doctor said, you are. The symptoms are disturbing. Find the time to sleep. If you sleep, your symptoms may decrease. If you don't, you won't be able to do the play anyway. I took the pills, and the doctor ordered a cab to take me back to the kingdom of the spiders. The next day, we had our first read-through. David Frank came in and introduced everyone who worked at the theater. He handed out schedules, and lo and behold, I saw I had the next three days off. It was now or never. I walked over to Bob and pulled him aside. I told him, I need a favor. It was a secret. Bob got a stealthy look on his face, and he checked to make sure nobody was listening in on our conversation, then nodded for me to continue. I whispered, I didn't want anyone at the theater to know, but I was going to be taking some drugs over the next three days that would probably make me unconscious. Bob interjected, cool. I continued, I need someone I can trust to check in on me and make sure I'm safe. And I handed the bottle of pills over to Bob for his perusal. Bob looked at the bottle and said, hey, I wonder if this is anything like the shit they gave me when I got blown up in Korea. Heavy-duty downers. Great. I said, if you can do this, we should start right away. We should start now. Bob looked at me and smiled and said, bro, you know I'm down for that. That was Plan B, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, trying things out with the cliffhanger approach there, I see, this time around. <laughs> it's a new thing I'm going to do. The next three stories all kind of linked together. So uh, uh, next week we'll find out what happened after I took the drugs, which is quite entertaining. It, it, we'll see. We'll see how it works with the week in between. All right. Uh, I look forward to hearing the resolution. Um, in the meantime, uh, I just want to do our weekly thing where we kind of try to read someone's email. Uh, yes, sir. 
people who email you with their stories and how your stories have affected their lives. Uh, this week, Greg writes in, Mr. Tobolowski, I only started listening to the Tobolowski files a couple weeks ago, but quickly made it through all past episodes. I just finished listening to the most recent one, The Afflictions of Love, and felt moved enough to write uh, to you. For me, your stories work on so many levels. They're entertaining and insightful, with not a dud in the bunch. In addition, I also enjoy hearing the craft you've put into each one. For example, you will mention an event in the beginning of the story that proves to be more meaningful by the time you get to the end. It is like a final piece clicking into place that lets you see the whole story. My favorite parts of your stories are when my mind feels like that click at the end. I'm sorry, feels that click at the end. I myself have taken part in storytelling endeavors of sorts on a smaller scale, such as playwriting, improvisation, writing prose, stand-up comedy... And I'm now at a time in my life at the age of 40 where I want to make a more concerted effort in those areas and get beyond the fear and depression that pushed me into less satisfying work. Your stories have inspired me with both their content and their craft. I'm grateful to have found them. Thank you for sharing them and I wish you continued success. Also, thank you to David Chen for his work as well. So uh, thank you, Greg, for that email. And uh, you know, it seems like, Stephen, the, the stories are, are kind of a good way for people to... Uh, be inspired to do more creative endeavors. Well, I, you know, I didn't. I had written this story, Plan B, before I saw Craig's email. But I Re- realize how many of my stories deal with uh, fear and <laughs> fear and depression, <laughs> like Plan B does. So, so uh, hopefully, this story will will uh, hearten you too about how sometimes things don't work out, and you have to take Plan B. Very cool. Well, Stephen, if people want to email you and share their stories with you or react to your stories, how can they reach you? Uh, they can reach me at uh, email, stephentobolowski at gmail.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y. You can reach me at twitter.com slash Tobolowski and at facebook.com, Stephen Tobolowski, right? Yes, facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski. And, and I want to mention one other thing. I got a couple letters this week from uh, people in other parts of the world uh, interested in uh, Stephen Tobolowski's birthday party. And I wanted to remind the worldwide listeners that if you're interested in that, we, the way we have finished making that movie was you can listen to it in different, uh, what is it, you know, DVD zones, David. Chapters? Oh, no, 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 regions, regions. Yes, different regions. So if you're in the United Kingdom, if you're in Asia, you, the DVD of Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party will work in your region. We did that especially. So know that to be the case. Very cool. And uh, you can get that at stbpmovie.com, the DVD that started and inspired the podcast. <laughs> Uh, you can find me if you're looking for more of my work at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y. Facebook.com slash Chen David. And, uh, of course, it's slash film.com, which hosts the Tobolowski Files. Uh, I also want to point out that uh, we are planning on... It's, it's, again, it's May 26th right now. This episode, I think, is going to come out on June 4th. So uh, that means that tomorrow <laughs> we will be having... <laughs> We will be having a, a potential meetup uh, with Stephen Tobolowsky and some people from Slash Film. And actually, the more people that know that Stephen's going to be there, 
the 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 larger this this group seems to be becoming so it, it might end up being unwieldy and and uh you know beyond our our ability to handle but in any case if you want more details about that i would encourage you to go to slashfilm.com or tobolaskyfiles.com and check out the post for this episode we should have details there um you can also follow me and steven on twitter that's actually probably the best way to do it is uh, follow us on twitter we'll be announcing what's going on with the meetup um, twitter.com slash Tobolaski or twitter.com slash Dave Chensky and uh, I'll try to make a posting on Stephen Tobolaski's Facebook page as well so again three ways to figure out where and when the meetup is happening on June 5th 2010 uh, one is at tobolaskyfiles.com two is through our Twitter pages and three is at uh, facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolaski so basically if you don't make it you only have yourself to blame <laughs> I think that's uh, that's going to take us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. Thank you guys for tuning in, and uh, have a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>